You are listening to Living for the Cinema with Jeff Gershon. I am a cinema enthusiast of all genres, here to discuss with you one film every episode. The good, the bad, and the ugly of what makes each film unique. Spoiler alert! No matter when this film was released, there's a good possibility I will be revealing spoilers about the plot, or even possibly the ending. So just be warned. Assault on Precinct 13, which came out in 1976 and was directed by John Carpenter. It stars Austin Stoker, Darwin Jostin, Lori Zimmer, Martin West, Charles Cyphers, Nancy Kyes, Peter Bruni, Henry Brandon, and Tony Burton. The genre would be action thriller. Well, they sure gave you some sweet job. Better than some. Requesting assignment. Proceed to Precinct 13 and take over from Captain Carrying a busload of hate is not my idea of better than anything. I gotta miss you. Written and directed by John Carpenter. All you do is answer the telephone and send over any strays. Maybe some still think this is a police station. From the legendary director of Halloween, and they live. I really think someone in the central office wanted to give you something special on your first night out. This is the siege. It's a goddamn siege. Assault on Precinct 13. Now playing. Rated R. It's funny. I've always called myself a John Carpenter fan, and yet I never actually saw this movie until just a couple of years ago. What are you going to do? I vaguely remember also seeing the 2005 remake with Ethan Hawke and Lawrence Fishburne, but if it had been the original from 76, which I had seen, I doubt it would have only been vague recollections. Because this movie's pretty awesome. Apparently, Carpenter's inspiration for spinning this yarn of a siege on a soon-to-be-closed police precinct in L.A. by a street gang was doing a more urban, modern version of Rio Bravo, the classic Western, with some visual influence from Night of the Living Dead. And this being 48 years ago, it's a tribute to just how effective an action thriller that this movie is that I'm still comfortable even calling it modern. I'm all jealous of you, Wilson. You get all this VIP treatment. Here they let me walk around almost free. Hey, what? You got a smoke on you? Yeah, but I'm not going to give it to you. Why not? Not good for you. Smoking can kill you. Uh, You don't like competition, huh? You think you're real fancy, don't you? I have moments. It's clear at times that there were budgetary constraints, but props to Carpenter for truly escalating the tension early on as one cop, two prisoners, two secretaries, and one distraught father who is frozen in shock, they all start to see everything around them, start to get plugged with holes, as they are surrounded with the sound of silence. Cheney just fell down. He didn't fall. He was shot. What? I couldn't tell if he was still alive. 
But there wasn't any sound. Silences. They're using silencers. Now, I have to be honest. I didn't even know that silencers for automatic firearms were even in use during the 1970s. But I have to think that this movie was likely one of the first films to make such extensive use of them. And while the force is outside, laying siege to this one barely occupied building in the middle of tens of blocks of mostly abandoned city remain relatively faceless, we get to spend some quality time with the folks who are trapped inside. They're a likable bunch, and it becomes very easy to root for them. Austin Stoker plays Lieutenant Bishop, a newly promoted cop who has the misfortune of being assigned to oversee this precinct on its last night, as the phone lines are also being disconnected, of course. He's the one they want. Why don't we give him to them? Well, don't give me that civilized look! This is my station tonight. He came in here for help. He's going to get all the help we can give him. And Stoker is very engaging as a good cop trying to navigate through an increasingly dangerous situation who is determined to protect those who remain alive in the station, including two prisoners played by Darwin Joston and Tony Burton. Yep, Tony Burton was Duke from the Rocky movies. Both prisoners rise to the occasion, especially Joston's Napoleon Wilson, that's his name, who was known as a pretty murderous thug, but develops an easy camaraderie with not only the lieutenant, but also Lay, the resourceful and attractive secretary on site, who apparently is a pretty good shot. How is it? I can't move it, and it hurts like a son of a bitch. That was close timing in there. You were good. If I'd been any good in here, maybe she'd still be alive. Lay is played by Lori Zimmer, and she's pretty deadpan most of the time. She, Justin, and Stoker play pretty well off of each other, and their relaxed performances actually had me wishing that I'd seen these actors in more projects since then. And yes, it goes without saying that this movie is pretty violent, and there's even that one pretty shocking but abrupt moment of violence early on, a murder, which sets the tone for what's to follow. Carpenter makes it clear to us off the bat that no one is safe, and that tension carries through to the rest of this gem. Between me and Snow White... Shit! 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 What's wrong? We haven't flipped a coin yet. I'm gonna lose. You got a bad attitude, Wells. I always lose. Had bad luck all my life. Now, how do you think I ended up in here? Maybe it'll change. It might, if we don't flip a coin. Let's do something else. What? Potatoes. All right. And now the categories. The first category would be the best needle drop. This is the best song cue or piece of score used throughout the runtime of the film. Like I said, nobody is safe in this movie, and we are also reminded of that by Carpenter, his synth-infused score, which kind of sounds like a hybrid of his own mid-tempo score that he would compose a few years later for Escape from New York, and also mixing that with Brad Fidel's score for the first Terminator. Considering that this came out in 76, this score is definitely one of the first of its kind, coming out just a year before Tangerine Dream's groundbreaking synth score for previous episodes, Sorcerer. Great movie, great score. The music itself is pretty minimalist, and it's driven by gentle percussion in the background throughout.
and I would be lying if I did not admit to also finding it extremely catchy. We hear this during the opening credits, the closing credits, and a couple of points sprinkled throughout the movie. I'm, of course, referring to the main theme, which is also technically referred to as, quote, Julie. Seriously, try not humming this for hours after you have first heard it. And that brings me to the next category, Wasted Talent. This is the most underutilized talent involved with the film. For a film with relatively no fat on the bone and some shocking violence to help set the plot in motion, it's still an interesting choice for us to never actually see the main perpetrator of said violence after the early section of the movie. I'm referring to, of course, the character actor and carpenter stalwart Frank Doubleday, who is playing White Warlord. That's what he's credited here in the credits, is White Warlord. This act of violence that involves him shooting through an ice cream truck, resulting in the disturbing bloody death of a little girl named Julie. Well, Doubleday makes the most of his limited screen time. Hey, this is regular vanilla. I want a vanilla twist. He is effectively quite menacing with limited dialogue. And then we don't see his character again for the remainder of the movie. Now, this was obviously intentional on Carpenter's part, as it reflected his desire to present the siege on this precinct to be coming from a generally faceless horde. And that generally works. However, you could also make a case it might have denied the audience a more satisfying emotional payoff towards the end. This is a minor quibble, mind you. Just saying. And that brings me to the next category, the trailer moment. This is the scene or moment that best describes this movie. Now, we are about 45 minutes into the movie, and you can just tell that the same John Carpenter who would pioneer the horror genre just a couple of years later with Halloween, he's here to play. And he does something very interesting here. Now, the scenario of being inside a relatively small police station, ducking for cover, as thundering gunfire from all directions starts to decimate everything above waist level while you hear nothing but ear-bursting booms of gunfire can be very scary. But here in this movie, having that same violence thrust upon you from guns with silencers so you just hear the ping when walls are punctured or you just hear glass gradually cracking apart, well, that can be unnerving. almost feels like a silent, invisible ghost is floating in and out of the building to cause destruction. And I have zero doubt that this was the otherworldly fright that Carpenter and crew were going for. A police precinct feeling like an increasingly violent haunted house for several minutes. And thus begins the siege in a very effective way. (laughs) 
The final category would be the MVP. This is the person or people who are most responsible for the success of this film. Just like with recent previous episode Mad Max and the director George Miller, the legend, this was also an instance of an aspiring new director making a name for himself with his first real feature film with a lean mean genre piece on a limited budget. Now Carpenter had directed the extremely low budget sci-fi comedy Dark Star a couple of years prior, but that was really more of an instance of a student film extended into feature length. Assault on Precinct 9, as this movie was originally titled because the, believe it or not, the actual precinct number for this fictitious station is 9. It's just in District 13, that's how they get around it, because 13 sounds cooler in the title. It does. This movie had a roughly $250,000 budget, which Carpenter made the most of by filming in areas around LA which were more run down and not as populated at the time, including Venice, Watts, South Central, and North Hollywood. And much of it was filmed on the fly, And of course, Carpenter himself wore several different hats, as he does. He was the director, the sole writer, the composer, and even the editor. And the result is a taut, entertaining 90 minutes of gritty suspense and violence. There is just so much inventiveness on display here, from the piercing sound design to some canny cutting of images together to portray seemingly bloody violence while showing minimal blood. For orchestrating one of the most effective action thrillers of the 1970s, even with limited resources, John Carpenter is the MVP. As a director, what did you learn from this film? Well, lots of different things, conflicting things. Again, actors are sometimes difficult to deal with, but, but they're good people. And as soon as I realized that what they needed from me, I began to relax. I got, I gained some confidence as a director, you know. I could direct scenes. Uh, it, it was a great learning experience. And uh, just as a man, as John Carpenter, what, what did you learn from that experience of doing uh, Assault? Oh, I matured. Every experience matures you, I think. When you, you're a young punk and then you start to go, go through a period of time and you become a professional, which is always I've ever, always I've, that's all I've ever wanted to be. And my rating for Assault on Precinct 13 would be four and a half stars out of five. Highly recommended. And if you already consider yourself a Carpenter fan and you haven't seen it, you will not be disappointed. Of course, a couple of years later, he would achieve bigger breakout success directing the all-time horror classic Halloween. And don't get me wrong, I really like Halloween, and its impact on cinema cannot be overstated. But among the films from the first phase of Carpenter's career, basically including all films that he would get before his first big-budget film directing previous episode The Thing, that first phase, this one remains my personal favorite. And if you're looking to watch Assault on Precinct 13, it is now streaming on Peacock, Roku, Fubo, Tubi, Canopy, Shout TV, Pluto TV, and Freebie. That's got to be some kind of record for this podcast. Honestly, there's no excuse for you not to see it, so see it. And that ends another barricaded review. Please like, subscribe, and share the Living for the Cinema podcast, and follow and like us on Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd. And join us next time for another review from Living for the Cinema. Living for the Cinema.